Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, in the rules of golf, a mulligan is defined as a second chance to perform an action usually after the first chance went wrong through bad luck or a blunder. It's when the player is informally allowed to replay a stroke despite being against the formal rules. Well, I'm sharing this because I need to ask for a preaching mulligan today. A few weeks ago, I inadvertently skipped over a third reference to Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. It covers the the verses that we're gonna be looking at today is verses 11 and 12. It talks about Genesis chapter 15 to 18 and then 21. Well, I missed that a few weeks ago. I discovered this when a member of our church Uh, brought something to my attention about Abraham, and then as I looked into the text a little further, I went, oh, how did I miss that? Well, I prayed about it and wrestled through it, and at first I thought, well, I'll just skip it, and a few years later, in the future, I'll come back and I'll get it next time. And as I kept praying about it and wrestling with it, I went, no, I can't do that. I don't feel good about that. So, Um, as I spill my guts here in the introduction, um, I want to apologize for this oversight, and I know we got some sharp minds in this room, and I I was just afraid that if I skip this, somebody's going to bring it to my attention when the series is done. Hey, how come you didn't talk about this right here? And so the mulligan I need is not a second chance at a sermon I've already preached. That's good news for you and me. Instead, it's rather a chance to go back and complete a sermon that I missed earlier. So maybe it would help to think of this as a makeup sermon, if I could be allowed to do that. So today's message, and I created a slide to help you understand what I'm talking about here. Today's message is the one I should have delivered after Abraham obeyed by faith in Genesis 11 and 12 but before he passed his faith test in Genesis 22, where he almost sacrificed Isaac. So you see the insert there, arrow? So so I want to go back and hit that so I can sleep better at night, and hopefully so you get ministered to by this part of the Abraham story, because it has to do with waiting by faith. And so with that... um, Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word, and I'll dive into the text with you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who can resurrect. We thank you, Lord, that you're in the resurrection business. Father, as we open up the scriptures this morning, please, would you speak to us? Would you do business with us? And Lord, I'm going to pray boldly like Spurgeon did once, the Prince of Preachers. Father, would you comfort the afflicted this morning? Uh, 
and would you afflict the comfortable. Please, Father, with your spirit, illuminate the text for us and help us to learn and to grow our living faith this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, Forbes magazine published a fascinating article listing the top 10 traffic jams of all time. Can you believe somebody took time to write that? I know. It's fascinating stuff. Just Google it. It's out there. If you thought some of the traffic jams you've experienced between here and Los Angeles were bad, just imagine being in one of these. Here's the top three. For the sake of time, I'll only show the top three. The number one worst traffic jam of all time was in August 2010 in Beijing, China. They had the worst traffic jam of all time. It stretched for 62 miles and lasted for 12 days. The normally quick trip across the Beijing-Tibet expressways took as long as three days for one vehicle to make during this traffic jam. Contrary to what one might think, there was no inclement weather or accident or something like that. Uh, there just were too many vehicles on the road. The second worst traffic jam of all time took place in August 1969 at Woodstock or Bethel, New York, as it's also known. Many have heard of this famous milestone concert in rock history. Woodstock was held on Max Yasker's farm, but many people don't know, unless you were there, uh, is that this mega concert caused the second worst traffic jam in history. More than half a million people attended the concert which caused a 20-mile traffic jam on the New York triway, throughway, excuse me. Thousands of motorists abandoned their cars on the road after the concert started so they wouldn't miss out on three days of love, peace, and music. And then the third worst traffic jam of all time was February 2011 in Chicago, Illinois. Over 20 inches of lake effect snow fell on the Windy City and its suburbs on February 1st while motorists were headed home from work. Most were stuck for more than 12 hours and several abandoned their vehicles in the drifting snow. Uh, ironically, I remember that snowstorm because we lived about an hour away from Lakeshore Drive. That's Lakeshore Drive there. We lived in Valparaiso, Indiana, and um, I don't have time to show you, but some other time, I, maybe after service, I could show you some pictures of what our house looked like on that day. Two feet of snow on the ground. Waiting on God can feel like you're stuck in a traffic jam. Has anybody experienced that before? You can't go forward, you can't go backward, you can't go left, you can't go right. It can be maddening. All you can do when you're in a traffic jam and all you can do when you're waiting on God is just wait. 
There are times when he will just hem you in, to use the language from Psalm 139. To make matters even worse, when you look over to the eastbound or the westbound side, depending on which direction you're going, and you see all the other cars going right real fast, maybe you've been like me in traffic jams, go, well, how come they get to go normal speed? But we're stuck here. This causes you to wonder then, well, why do they get to make progress while I'm sitting here? They're going at the speed of life, and I'm going zero miles per hour. Or then to make matters even worser, I think my kids use that word. After you get through your traffic jam, sometimes you can't even see what caused it. There's no accident. There's no inclement weather. And all of a sudden, just cars start picking up speed and returning to speed limit, and you go, what was that all about? <laughs> we just sat for an hour for nothing? That was a waste of time. And that just increases the frustration. So let's be honest, waiting on God can simply be agonizing, like you're sitting in a traffic jam. We're going to resume our series in the Hall of Faith today called Unlikely Heroes. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and to pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder and follow along and take some notes. I'm hoping that this message will minister to you as I use a preaching mulligan. And uh, I'm hoping if it doesn't minister to you today, it will in the future when the Lord has you waiting on Him. Our theme verse for this series is Hebrews 11:6. Let's say it out loud together. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 was written to a group of new Christ followers who had been saved out of Judaism. They were experiencing intense persecution for following Christ, their friends were deserting the faith, and they were considering doing the same. When we consider Hebrews 11:6 in its context, we can see the author's response to his audience would in essence be, you want to give up the faith now? You've just started walking by faith. In fact, you are right in the middle of pleasing God as you persevere while your friends walk away from the faith. So when, so the author, he's writing to this struggling group. I mean, it just hit me this week while I was studying this. I went, man, I wish I had realized this earlier. Mind blown. I think the reason he wrote verse 6 is he's saying, you're pleasing God right now. Why stop by shutting down the faith? So in order to encourage them to press on in the faith, to keep persevering, to keep walking by faith and not by sight, he recounts the lives of several 
Old Testament heroes who trusted the Lord against all odds and still kept the faith. This is why Hebrews 11 is commonly called the Hall of Faith. And you probably have experienced, uh, as I have, that one of the most agonizing times to live by faith is when you are waiting on God. And when you're waiting on God to keep his word. And thus, that's our big idea for today. Living faith enables us to wait for God's timing. Living faith enables us to wait for God's timing. Most of us, if not all of us, hate to wait. I'll admit it. How about you? This is in part because in our inherited sin nature wants to satisfy our desires. And we want what we want, and we want it right now. This is compounded further by the culture that we live in, which sends us messages several times a day, and just bombards us with, seize the day. This is a limited time offer. <laughs> Buy now. Do what feels right while it feels right. Only while supplies last. So throughout this series, the author of Hebrews has been telling us that past faith heroes can help us exercise present faith. But exercising a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will inevitably lead to seasons of waiting. Seasons in which we find ourselves having to wait on the Lord to do what only He can do. It could be waiting for a promotion when it seems like everybody else is getting promoted. It could be waiting for a job when one door after another door keeps getting shut in your face. It could be waiting for a spouse or waiting to start a family as you struggle with infertility or waiting for healing when modern medicine has no answers. At one time or another, we all will have to wait on the Lord to do what only He can do. And so this message is a reminder that we are not the first believers who will wait on the Lord, and we certainly won't be the last. And as we continue our guided tour through the Hall of Faith with its vaulted ceilings and marble pillars, the author of Hebrews tells us, hey, before we move on from Abraham, as we look at his statue here, there's another story you need to know about him. And so with that, if you would look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as far, excuse me, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Uh, please notice in verse 11, and I think I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that uh, the prepositional phrase, by faith, appears before every hero mentioned. So in my Bible, I've underlined, by faith, Abel, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, and so on and so forth. 
I think the author does this in order to remind us that his readers and his readers that the means by which these characters, these heroes, did what they did for the Lord, it, it was not by their intelligence. It was not by their own strength. It was not their own wisdom. It wasn't their networking of relationships. Um, it wasn't their financial resources. It wasn't being an optimist, and it certainly wasn't being a realist. And they didn't do what they did for the Lord by helping God out. They simply did it by faith. So these average Joes did what they did because they exercised a living faith in the Lord, and so the Lord in turn used them. Notice in verse 12 it says, From one man and him is good as dead. This is a tongue-in-cheek uh, remark by the author, and it's his attempt to let us know that although Abraham and Sarah had not had marital intimacy in a long time, uh, the Holy Spirit enabled them to do things they hadn't done since they were young marrieds. Or in other words, although the birth we're going to read about here in a few minutes was a miracle, it wasn't the same type of miracle that put Jesus in the Virgin Mary's womb, if you know what I mean. Just say yeah. Okay. I don't need to put any slides up or anything. Okay. Make sure you're with me. That's all. Notice also in verses 11 and 12, it says, Sarah was past the age, but Abraham was as good as dead. I had a mentor once that told me, try and find the humor in the text if you can. Does anybody else see the humor here in how the infertility of these senior citizens is described drastically differently? It sounds like Sarah was just a tad, just a tad outside of her eligibility to be fertile, while Abraham was already in the nursing home. It just, it's just like, man, that is cold. And he was as good as dead. If Abraham could speak today, thanks, author of Hebrews. <laughs> As you'll see in a few minutes, he, he actually led 300 men into battle. I think it's in, in chapter 16. <laughs> Beat four Mesopotamian kings. But he was as good as dead. So, all that to say, Abraham and Moses are two of the most talked about heroes in the Hall of Faith. They are first ballot Hall of Famers. They get more coverage than anybody else. Abraham's mentioned three times in eight verses in this chapter. So let's turn back, if you would, with me to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll look at the rest of the story and see what happened with Abraham and Sarah. And as you turn there, let me uh, just give you some background to bring you up to speed on what's happened so far in the story. In Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 14, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. Actually, in the earlier chapters of Genesis, sin becomes so rampant in, after chapter 3 where the fall takes place, uh, you know that the Lord then decides he can't take it anymore. So he sets aside Noah, tells Noah to choose animals from each species, and then sends a flood, wipes out every living creature on the earth, 
because God wants to start all over again. Well, things were better for a short period of time as the earth repopulated uh, with Noah's offspring, but once again, most of the world's population would not walk with the Lord. And so the Lord decides, well, if the world won't walk with me, I'm going to build a nation that will. The cornerstone of this new nation would be a godly man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord tells this childless, 75-year-old senior citizen and AARP member, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Although Abraham and Sarah became believers in Genesis chapter 12, later in the chapter, the Bible tells us that like all new believers, they needed to mature. In chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, they are in Egypt and they lie to Pharaoh. Fearing for their lives, they tell Pharaoh in Egypt that Sarah is not his wife, but rather his sister. Well, the Lord shows them mercy and gets them out of that mess. But in chapter 13, the Lord says to him, I'm going to make your offspring as much as the dust of the earth or the dust in my living room. And so um, chapter 13, Abraham hears this and he's like, okay, well, how's this going to happen, Lord? Well, then in chapter 14, Abraham demonstrates a growing faith by leading a small band of soldiers to rescue his nephew Lot from the grips of four Mesopotamian kings. Still, though, he's childless, 75 years old, and has no idea how God is going to start a nation with him. And so we pick up the story in chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And I'm using his final name for simplicity's sake. Abram was his first name, but then he got his name changed by the Lord later. Fear not, Abraham, I I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold... The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here's the first point on your outline that Abraham teaches us about living faith, and that is that the Lord declares promises in order to engage our faith. He wants to engage our faith. We learned a few weeks ago in chapter 12 that God called Abraham because he wanted to use him. The Lord said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, The Lord wanted to bless him. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And he wanted to make him a blessing. 
However, in order to do these things, Abraham needed to have his faith engaged. So notice in verse 1, the Lord says, fear not. Now, why would he say that? Well, probably because Abraham had demonstrated that he still feared man back in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, when they were in Egypt and lied to Pharaoh. Lying, obviously, is a sin. And Abraham might have also been fearing retaliation from the four kings that he rescued his nephew Lot from in chapter 14. Now, in verse 2, Abraham presses the Lord with a question. Probably in response to the Lord's promise of a reward in verse 1. And to satisfy his curiosity as to how is the Lord going to make a great nation out of me. I've spent most of my life, all my life, with no children. Having an heir in modern times, in our culture today, is not as big a deal, but back then, in Abraham's time, it was huge. It was a big deal. It was a big deal for a father to have a son that could carry on the family name, carry on the legacy, and the estate into future generations. Men wanted sons back then so they could hand their property and their wealth over to the sons and in essence keep the family business in the family. This is why he says to the Lord in verse 2, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What he was saying is that Eliezer was one of Abraham's servants, appointed by him to be his heir since he had no children of his own. The law in those days allowed a fatherless, excuse me, a childless father to do that, to adopt one of his servants and designate him as an heir in order to ensure the transference of the family name, legacy, and estate. And so Abraham did that because he was well up in years and he had no children. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord replies and says that he and Sarah will not only have a natural family, but also a spiritual family. They will have a family of spiritual descendants. Numbering as many as the stars in the heavens. I was reading an article on the website Live Science last night. Did you know that inventions such as the Hubble Space Telescope have revealed that there are 10 times as many galaxies than scientists originally thought? About 100 million, or, and I'm not good at math, so I copied and pasted this from the article, so if this doesn't sound right, I have the footnotes for you. About 100 million or 10 to the 8th power stars inhabit the average galaxy according to one of the best estimates. Since there are now believed to be about 2 trillion galaxies, when this is multiplied by the 100 million stars in each galaxy, the total comes to about 10 raised to the 20th power stars in the universe. What does this all mean? Well, it means that if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then the God who decorated the heavens 
with a few trillion stars ordained that you be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And like Abraham, he wants to use you for his purposes. He wants to bless you, and he wants to make you a blessing. That's a good spot for an amen, by the way. I mean, we're not a Baptist church, but it's okay to say amen every now and then. Notice in verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord. Oh, here's another fascinating thing about Abraham. He struggles, but then he also has moments of greatness. It says in the original Hebrew text, when he believed, it could literally be read as, Amen, God. (laughs) When translated, the word in the Hebrew text for believe means to lean your whole weight upon something. As if if it was pulled out from underneath you, you'd fall. Well, in this case, Abraham leaned wholly on the promises of God. God said it, therefore, it's going to happen. I believe it. He's a promise maker, and I know God's a promise keeper. Well, then the Lord performs a ceremony with Abraham in the next paragraph of verses that's intended to be a public commitment of the promises that God made to him. It's in verses 7 to 21 of Genesis 15 that theologians call the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, over the next few years, Abraham's faith grows, but he also stumbles like we all do. Ten years go by, and we pick up the story again in chapter 16, verse 1. So we're ten years later now. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, was, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had lived Ten years in the land of Canaan with Sarah, Abraham's wife, he took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. Here's number two on your outline. The second thing we learn about living faith and God's promises in Abraham is that the Lord delays promises in order to enlarge our faith. To enlarge our faith. And this is hard for us to accept because I I can't think of my years of walking with the Lord and being in fellowship with Christians. I, I can't think of a Christ follower who has ever said to me, You know, I think my faith needs to be enlarged. 
And that's because we all think our faith is big enough. <laughs> we all think, I got enough faith, man. I'm, I'm good, Lord. No, 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 no. I got, I'm good. I got, I got the faith. I got the faith. And he knows. No, you don't. No, we got to stretch that thing out. Come on. We're going we're gonna to really grow that faith. Now, in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 16, men, did you notice in the text that there's actually something worse than having your wife mad at you? It's having two women in your house that are mad at you. Because you did what the first woman told you to, and it backfired on you. Seriously, like Adam did in the Garden of Eden, Abraham acted on bad advice from his impatient wife instead of urging her to continue in the faith. Sarah wanted to use worldly means to achieve a divine end. Why was it worldly? Well, because it was actually a legal custom in those days for a barren woman to give her servant to her husband as a surrogate mother. And if a child was conceived between the husband and the maidservant, the child could be adopted by the husband and made an heir. Now, we got to be careful, though. We can't look down our spiritual noses at Sarah because we've all tried to help God out at one time or another. And don't be lying because you're in church. We've all tried to help the Lord out. And we can't criticize Abraham because we've all at one time or another taken advice from people who told us what we wanted to hear instead of us seeking the Lord to find out what we needed to hear. So let's keep in mind that we hold in our hands a copy of God's word where we know the whole story. <laughs> we know how it turns out, whereas Abraham and Sarah, they're living this thing out in real time, in slow motion, one day at a time. So, the Lord delays promises in order to enlarge our faith. In verses 7 through 14, the Lord meets with Hagar in the wilderness, encourages her, realizing she got caught up in a messy situation. And the Lord tells her what she is to name her son. Sarah's impatience not only messes up Hagar's life, but also causes problems for their family in the generations to come. If you would look at verses 15 and 16 now, as we skip to the end of the chapter, Hagar then bore Abraham a son. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So 13 years passes by as we come to chapter 17. Abraham and Sarah are doing their best to wait on the Lord, but they stumble again. So in chapter 17, let's skip to verse 16 of chapter 17, 15, sorry. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, or Sarai, excuse me, but Sarah shall be her name. It means princess in the Hebrew. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, and shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. 
and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, most Bibles, and yours probably included, have a footnote that tells us the Hebrew word for Isaac means he laughs. Do you see the Lord's sense of humor there? It's another reminder that the Lord knows what we're thinking. He hears what we say, even when we're by ourselves in the privacy of our home. He sees everything that we do. Things get even better in chapter 18. The Lord comes to visit Abraham and Sarah's tent in the form of three angels. And we pick up the story again in chapter 18, verse 9. Turn there. So... The Lord, in the form of three angels, uh, chapter 18, verse 9, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, Well, she's in, the, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. By the way, remember, she was past age, and Abraham was as good as dead. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Verse 12, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Did you know it's not good to lie to the Lord? It doesn't work. For she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And then the men set out from there they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to be set on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Well, once again, keep in mind, Sarah's 10 years younger than Abraham. Also, I wanted to point out in verse 12, where she's laughing and she says, I'm worn out. My Lord is old. Shall I have this pleasure? The word for pleasure in the Hebrew text is referring to sexual pleasure. So she is, she is saying, wait a minute, Lord. We haven't done that in a long time, and it's no longer enjoyable for me. So how is this going to happen? <laughs> Are you kidding? 
And so, um, obviously, the Lord takes care of business, and they are able to conceive a child. Now, for the rest of their lives, I've always found this funny. For the rest of their lives, when they're training Isaac, when they're playing with him, when they call him in for dinner, they are reminded that they laughed at God. He laughs. It's time to eat. Come wash up for dinner. He laughs. You sit down now and you use your manners. And after dinner, you need to do your chores. He laughs. I just can't imagine what that would be like. But chapter 16 and 18 leave us with a burning question. Why does God make us wait for his promises? I think the answer depends on the person and on the promise. Most of the time, I think it's because the Lord wants to increase our faith. So we can handle what we're going to receive with the promise. Other times, it could be to teach us patience. It could be to make us grateful when the promise does come true. Because delayed gratification makes us more grateful once we are gratified. It could be that the Lord wants to deal with a sin issue in our hearts. It could be that he wants to give others a chance to see our faith in action, like, for example, our children, maybe your grandchildren, maybe your unsaved coworkers. They're watching you persevere and wait on the Lord by faith. And that matters to the Lord. Or it could be that he needs to get other pieces on his chessboard in place before he gives us what we need. Because he's always moving things around and orchestrating events under his sovereign control. Well, the story wraps up in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. So the Lord visited Sarah just as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his own son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Just as a reminder, he was 75 when the Lord first told him he would make a great nation out of Abraham. So 25 years passed. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who? would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Here's the third uh, truth, third point on your outline. The Lord delivers on promises in order to establish our faith, to establish it, to entrench it, to give it deep roots, to set our faith up, so that we have God's stories we can reflect on and we can go, well, I waited five years for the Lord to come through with X, 
I certainly can wait longer for why. Because as we have experiences with the Lord providing, those experiences and God's stories build our faith. Because we can recall when the Lord came through, and those experiences give us the confidence to trust he'll come through again. Abraham and Sarah's faith was stronger, deeper, and richer because they waited on the Lord. And the same would be true of us when we wait. This is precious to the Lord because living faith, as you've heard me say before, is a compliment to him. Living faith is our agreement with what the Lord already knows about himself. It's our affirmation that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. So, here's two applications that come to mind. These are not the only ones. The Holy Spirit may give you others, but here's two that stood out to me after looking at these chapters as we sort of surveyed Genesis 16 to 18 and 21. The first is, avoid helping God out as you wait. Avoid helping God out as you wait. I want to encourage you to write down the scripture verses, by the way, next to these two applications. I chose them on purpose. And I want to encourage you to look them up in your Bible and underline them or write them out maybe later today or tomorrow during your morning devotions. When we try to help God out, just like Sarah tried, we not only offend the Lord, but we also run the risk of settling for less than his best. Ishmael was not God's best for Abraham and Sarah. In Psalm 50, the Lord says, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds on the hills, he says in Psalm 50. And all that moves in the field is mine too. That means the little worms, the little, the little mice, field mice. And the Lord says, they're mine. I know exactly where they are. He goes on in Psalm 50 to say, if I were hungry, I would not need to tell you as if the Lord could get hungry, because he's not human. But if I were hungry, I wouldn't need to tell you, because the world and its fullness are all mine. In other words, the Lord's saying, I don't need anybody. I don't need help, therefore, doing anything. I'm not dependent on anybody. This is reiterated in Acts chapter 17, where it says that the Lord does not need to be served by human hands as though he needed anything. Acts 17, verse 25. And the reason is because he's the one that gives breath to every living creature on earth. That's me, you, my dog, your cat, the horses, the little worms in the field, the field mice, the Lord gives breath to them all. And again, just in case you're missing this, let me draw a straight line from the theology we're doing here in Psalm 50 and Acts 17. Since the Lord owns everything on the earth, since the Lord's given life and breath to everything on the earth, he doesn't need your help. Did you get that? I just want to make sure you got that. 
He doesn't need my help either. Now, does that mean you should look for a job as you wait for God to provide? Absolutely. You can't just sit at home and go, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord. I don't need to prepare a resume. No, 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 don't do that. But, but does that mean that you should lower your standards for a spouse because you're tired of waiting for a godly man or woman to marry? Absolutely not. Now, discerning the difference between waiting and laziness, obedience, or helping can be difficult in certain situations. I, I get it. I've had to wrestle through that myself. I would encourage you to seek godly counsel in those situations or seasons. Here's the second application, because I'm sensing the first one wasn't convicting enough for you, so I thought I'd give you two. Okay, that wasn't funny, what I just said there. Memorize God's promises as you wait. So what can you do? I wanted to give you a positive. Memorize God's promises as you wait. And don't forget to write down 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Throughout the centuries, and I've been learning this myself in recent years, I've been reading biographies about some well-known saints to encourage my own faith, and it has been fascinating me to see how many popular saints who I've seen quoted in books like Spurgeon and Tozer and C.S. Lewis and J.C. Ryle and on and on and on, guys, you hear me quote, how they all struggled and suffered in their ministry, they struggled with their faith, but something they also all did was they memorized God's promises from the scriptures and they quoted those promises back to themselves. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He meant that having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ not only gives us access to God's promises, but also a guaranteed positive answer to those promises. Now, the timing is up for debate. It depends on when the Lord wants to give the answer. But Paul is saying, if you know Jesus, you're going to get a yes to the promise at some point. The Lord has never made a promise he couldn't keep, He's never changed his mind on a promise, and he's never been prevented from keeping a promise by someone more powerful than himself. This is why Charles Spurgeon, who had to wait on the Lord during many trying times in his ministry, he wrote that God's promises are like a check made payable to the believer with the intent of bestowing upon him some good thing in God's timing. Spurgeon goes on to talk about in a, this particular devotion book he wrote that, that checks have dates on them. So God puts a date on the check and our job is to keep taking the check back to the Lord, the bank, and to keep doing it until the date comes that he put on the check so we can cash it. I've written out a few years ago several of my famous, excuse me, favorite promises. I don't have famous promises. I have favorite promises from scriptures that I wrote out on three by five cards and I've got them on a spiral um, wire thing so I can flip them. And every now and then when I'm having dark days in my faith, I pull them out, put them on my 
bathroom counter or somewhere I'm going to see them so I can just rehearse those and replay them in my mind and expose my mind and my heart to them so that I can pray those promises back to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I got a check here. I don't know when the date is on the check because I can't cash it before the date. But Lord, I really, really need this one to come through. So, memorize God's promises as you wait. Well, when my family and I lived in the suburbs of Chicago a few years ago, one of the popular things to do on the weekend was to hit the beach up on Lake Michigan. We only lived about 30 to 40 minutes away, and after our first trip to the beach, we learned it was much more enjoyable to go at times and it was less busy. Um, this is because on the weekends, especially on holiday weekends, everybody in the region and their mother and their aunt and their grandmother and their cousins decides to get on the two-lane state road leading to the beach, and it creates a traffic jam. Interestingly, interestingly a Lake Michigan beach traffic jam is different than other traffic jams. Uh, because when I see traffic jams, for example, that are in like rush hour ones, people are cranky and irritable and all sorts of gestures flying in the air. You don't need me to show you any of those. But, but on the beach one, people are more chill. And so I was thinking about that. Why, why are they more chill when they're on the Lake Michigan beach traffic jam, two-lane state road, bumper to bumper for an hour waiting with the swimsuits and the beach balls and the beach toys? Well, I think it was because, first of all, they expected to wait, so they planned for it. And secondly, I think they didn't mind the traffic jam because they knew what was waiting for them at the end of the road. And what was waiting for them at the end of the road was worth it. It was worth the wait. They knew that when they got there to the beach, they'd be glad they sat in traffic and waited. Sand, sunshine, water, fresh air, time with friends and family, cooking out on the grill. If you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then you are now a recipient of all the promises God has given to his people in the scriptures. And what the Lord has promised us is exponentially greater than a day at the beach. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. This is another verse you might want to write down. This is a good one. I got this one written down on my three by five cards. No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Exponentially better than a day at the beach. So living faith enables us to wait for God's timing. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I know that there are people here today and some maybe listening online who are tired of waiting. Heavenly Father, please, 
Would you either give them the grace to wait longer, or Lord, would you come through with an answer to their prayers? Father, please, would you show in tangible, demonstrable ways that you are working all things together for good. So for those, Lord, that need jobs, give them a job. If you're not going to give them a job yet, sustain and provide for them until they get the job. Lord, for those who are praying for healing, Lord, would you grant them healing? And if they're not going to get that healing until they're until they have their resurrection body and they're with you in eternity, then Lord, give them the grace that they need to persevere with a broken down body. Lord, for those that are praying for a loved one to repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ, would you give them the patience and the love for that relative to allow you to work, to till the soil of that loved one's heart so that when they do repent and trust Christ, it's for real. It sticks. Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. This is story about Abraham and Sarah reminds us, Lord, of how much we are like them. We stumble and struggle like them. We also have good days where we've got good faith like them. Lord, please, would you be merciful and gracious to us like you were them. They weren't perfect, and neither are we. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved and the only name by which we can pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.